Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Great to be with you in Albuquerque. It's been a blessing over the years to be out here. I haven't been out in a couple of years, so a joy to be with you. If you have a Bible this morning, I'd like you to open it to James chapter 1. And we're going to look at the subject of how to handle temptation. How many of you have ever been tempted? Raise your hand. How many are being tempted not to raise your hand? (laughs) Tempted to lie. We all face temptation, we all face trials, and James deals with those two subjects uh, in the beginning of this book, the chapter 1 on trials and temptation. We're going to focus on verses 18 to, uh, 13 to 18 and look at the subject of how to handle temptation. So with your Bible open, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that as we open this morning your word that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and transform the child of God into the image of the Son of God, that we would be more like Jesus Christ. That is our prayer and that is our desire. And so, Lord, speak to each one that is here. Lord, I thank you for each person here today. They're not here by accident. We're all here by divine design. You brought us here to hear this message, to hear what the Spirit has to say. So open our ears and open our hearts and open our eyes and help us to receive your word. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus Christ and everyone agreeing said, Amen. I want you to follow with me beginning in verse 13. James says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempt he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed and when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." The theme of the book of James is faith that works. James is the epistle of applied Christianity. It is Christianity 101. The famous American evangelist D.L. Moody once said that every Christian's Bible should be bound in shoe leather to remind them that the Word of God is to be lived out in their daily life. And this is certainly a book that is bound in shoe leather, the book of James It is Christianity as it is to be lived in our daily lives. It is a faith that works, genuine faith. And a genuine faith, a real faith, a mature faith, is joyful in trials. Just a little information here. Go back to verse 2. My brethren, count it all a joy when you fall into different or manifold trials or testings. From verse 2 down to verse uh, 12, James is not dealing with temptation to sin, but the trial and testing of our faith. God tests our faith to purify it and to perfect it. 
But then we move in verse 13 to temptations. Let no man say when he is tempted. The same word is found in both verses, verse 2 and verse 13. But in verse 2, we're dealing with the subject of the testing or trying of our faith, which is common to every Christian. And then in verse 13, we're dealing with the subject of the temptation to evil or a temptation to sin. Now, why would James couple the two together? Here's why. Because many times God will allow our faith to be tested or tried. And what Satan wants to do is capitalize on that and turn that trial or testing into a temptation. He wants to tempt us to become impatient with God or to doubt God or disobey God. And so if your faith is being tested this morning, be on the alert and be careful. What can happen is, is in a time of testing, it can turn into a time of temptation where you are tempted to disobey God. Now, very simply in our text this morning, I want to break this down. There are three things. If you're taking notes, you want to write down. You need to remember to face temptation. First thing you need to remember is temptation's source. What is the source of temptation? If I'm going to stand against temptation, I need to know its source. Well, we find this in verses 13 and 14. Go back there with me. James says, let no man say when he is tempted that I am tempted of or by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted, here's its source, when we are drawn away of our own lust and we are enticed. Very simply, James tells us, first of all, temptation's source is not from God. I want you to notice that in verse 13. If you are tempted, or when you are tempted, actually. Notice, it's not a matter of if we are tempted, it's a matter of when. We'll all be tempted. When you are tempted, you cannot say that I am being tempted by God. Now, why would James say such a thing? Well, first of all, we are very, very good at shifting the blame, at passing the buck. Will Rogers once said, there are two errors in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. And we're good at blaming everyone but ourselves for our sin. We, we, we play the blame game. We blame our parents. You know, the reason I'm tweaked is my parents spanked me too much, you know. Or the reason I'm tweaked is because they didn't spank me at all. And it's my parents' fault. Or we, we blame our, our, our family. We blame maybe our environment. We blame our friends. Or we blame our boss. You know, he fired me. I lost my job. And so I had to do this or that. Or we blame our circumstances. We blame everyone but God. And it's no surprise, the very first man ever created, Adam, knew how to pass the buck. Remember when Adam was created in the Garden of Eden? Named all the animals, having a good time, hanging out in the garden with God and all the animals. And then Adam took a nap. God took from Adam's rib and he created the woman. And Adam woke up from the nap and found out he was married. <laughs> but he was stoked, you know. I mean, this is, this is cool. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman. 
But the woman was tempted by Satan, and she gave to Adam, and he ate the fruit, making a long story short. And he sinned, and man fell, and God came back in the garden. And remember what happened? Adam, have you eaten of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? What did Adam say? Did Adam say, oh God, yes, I'm sorry, Lord, I ate the fruit, it's my fault, I have no one to blame but me. Is that what Adam said? He said, the woman! That woman! And he didn't stop there. Remember what he said? You gave her to me. God, it's your fault. Lord, we were having a great time until I, until I found out I was married. Lord, everything was groovy with the animals, you know. And then this woman comes along. It's the woman you gave me, Lord. Why'd you do that? Heard of a little boy in Sunday school that heard about Adam and Eve and, you know, the woman coming out of Adam's side. And he woke up the next morning with an ache in his side. And he said, Mommy, Mommy, I think I'm having a wife. (laughs) But we love to shift the blame, don't we? You know, in all seriousness, there are a lot of men that blame their wives for their problems. She just learned how to cook. We would be happy. And women who blame their husbands and people who blame their kids. And you blame your teenagers. If I didn't have teenagers, I'd be a happy person. And we want to blame others and teenagers blaming their parents. The sad thing is, is that We often fail to realize the real sources, not God and not our circumstance, not our parents, it's us. God cannot be tempted with evil. Notice in verse 13, he gives us the very reason there as to why God does not tempt us. Why does not God tempt us? Because God cannot be tempted with evil. See that? Why cannot God be tempted with evil? Because God is holy and God is self-sufficient. He has need of Nothing. God needs nothing so he can be tempted by nothing. So neither tempts he any man. But where does temptation come from? Verse 14. It comes from our own sinful lust. The NIV renders this. You are dragged away by your own evil desires. That's a great rendering of that statement. Dragged away by your own evil desires. We have found the enemy and the enemy is who? Us. People will ask me, Pastor John, what's your greatest struggle as a Christian, as a pastor? What's your greatest struggle? And the answer is always me. I'm my greatest struggle. You look in the mirror and say, you are my biggest enemy because of our sinful flesh. Now, a little theology that's important for you to have as a foundation. The Bible teaches that man is fallen. Created in God's image, yes. God's crowning creation, yes. Loved by God. God sent His Son to redeem fallen man and creation as well. But man is in a fallen state. Adam sinned and brought sin and death, acting as a federal head upon the entire human race. You you can't understand man until you understand his sinful nature. Theologians call it the Adamic nature. The Bible refers to it as our flesh, our old man. We inherit it from Adam. It's a sin capacity that we have. 
And that's why we need to be born again. We need a new nature. But we're born with this sinful nature. It comes to us from Adam. We are fallen. We shouldn't be surprised when we sin. It's our natural bent. I heard of a young priest just starting in the ministry, and he was going to spend his first day in the confessional. At the end of that day, the senior priest uh, pulled him aside. He said, young man, when listening to people's confession, you've got to think of something other to say than, wow. <laughs> you know, we're so shocked by what people do. Why? We're sinners. We're all born in Adam. But thank God that Jesus, the last Adam, has come And the first Adam brought sin and death, and the the last Adam, Jesus, brought life and forgiveness. He conquered sin, and he conquered death. Now, you have three enemies, the devil, the world, and the flesh. It's interesting that in this text, classic passage on temptation, there is not one reference to the devil. Now, I believe in the devil, and the Bible teaches there is a personal devil. And he really doesn't like you, and he wants to destroy you and your marriage and your walk with God. And so forth. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy. But, but not, not one mention of the devil in this passage on temptation. You want to know why? Because you and I can sin perfectly well without the devil's help. Remember Flip Wilson, the great theologian? <laughs> the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it? Yes. Heard the story about uh, Franklin Graham when he was a young boy. Ruth had given him a spanking for doing something naughty, and then she went away and came back. He'd got done it again, and she said, why did you do that? And he said, the devil made me do it. She said, well, then we're going to have to beat the devil out of you. <laughs> and he got another good licking. The devil's gone now. He just left. You know, it's like we want, we want to blame the devil. I almost see the devil crying. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. Sad. We need to take responsibility. So we move then, secondly. Not only do we understand temptation's source, it is our sinful flesh, but we need to understand temptation's course. Write that down. Temptation's course. And we see that in verses 14 and 15. Go back to me with me to the book of James chapter 1. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is finished, it brings forth death. Now, there are three steps. Three steps. If you're taking notes, write these down. In the course of temptation, step number one is desire. Based on this text, we are drawn away of our own lust or desires And we are enticed. Stop right there. James is using a word picture here from the realm of fishing. Now, I don't know how many of you guys or gals like to fish. And if you do, God bless you. I'll pray for you after church. I'm not a fisherman. I've fished, but I'm I'm not into it. I, I don't understand fishing. Guys go fishing, they just sit there holding a pole. This is awesome. Woo! This, um, woo! this is awesome. What do you just stand there holding a pole? You know, they like to sleep until the pole card. I'm not a fisherman. I don't even like to smell fish. 
But this phrase is from the realm of fishing, and the word used there, drawn away, is the word we get our word lure from. It's to lure. And when you fish, you've got to have the right lure. It's got to be sparkly and shiny and look like the real thing and, you know, swim the right way. And it pulls the fish out of the little cave. It lures him out so that he takes off after. I've seen entire videos on how to make the right lures and how they need to work and everything. It's a real science, you know. So you're lured away and then enticed. And the word enticed has the idea of to set a bait. And when you fish, you've got to have the right bait, right, to catch the right fish. Right lure, right bait, right hook to catch the right fish at the right time, right place, right time of the year. Well, the imagery here is used for our own desires. We are snared or lured and entrapped by our own desires. The great Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said, snared by one's own bait. I like that. Snared by your own bait, your own evil desires. But then the desire moves secondly, the second step in this course, to disobedience. Notice that in verse 15, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. In other words, when you sin, you have disobeyed. So desire leads to disobedience. The language now is that of conception and childbirth. We move from the realm of fishing and lures and bait to the realm of childbirth. There's conception in the womb, right? The child grows within the womb of the mother and nine months or so later, the baby is born. So when you disobey, there is conception. And the birth that comes forth, in this case, is death. Death is the third step. Notice verse 15, and sin or disobedience, when it is finished, brings forth death. So the steps are desire, disobedience, and thirdly, death. Three generations. You have the mother, desire. You have the daughter, disobedience. And you have the granddaughter, death. Now, it's not a sin to be tempted. You need to know that. But it is a sin when we entertain that sinful thought in our minds, did you know you can sin in your attitude as well as your action and in your thoughts? Jesus said, if you look lustfully or longingly after someone, you have committed adultery in your heart. If you have murder or anger in your heart towards someone, that you've committed murder. So we can sin with our hearts and our attitudes. It's not a sin to be tempted. If we resist that temptation and we don't entertain it and we don't yield to it, Martin Luther used to say you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, right? But you can keep them from landing on your head and making a nest in your hair. You can't keep temptations from coming into your mind. Evil thoughts will come your way, but you can keep them from making a nest in your mind. You can resist them. And I I want to encourage you this morning, don't allow sinful thoughts to linger in your mind. Someone said, you sow a thought, you can reap an act. If you sow an act, you can reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you can reap a character. And if you sow a character, you can reap a destiny. And it all started with your thoughts. If you're here today and your mind isn't set on things above, that's where it needs to be. Colossians, Paul says, set your affections or your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. 
So we need to think on things that are pure and good and holy. And one of the best ways to do that, by the way, is to marinate your mind in the Word of God. Soak your mind in the Scriptures. But death is the result of that desire and disobedience. David walking on the roof of his house. And he looked over into the next courtyard and he saw a woman taking a bath and he had desire. He should have turned away. Instead, he disobeyed and he committed adultery. And as Nathan exposed David's sin, the child that is born shall die. And so there is death. There's physical death. There's spiritual death, separation from God. And ultimately, there is eternal death. So the child that is born is death. We need to remember that sin leads to death. What we reap, we will sow. And that's why he says in verse 16, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived, is what he says. Don't be deceived. You can't blame God. You only can blame yourself. And we sin because of our own sinful, evil, bent, or desire. It's important to understand that. But there's a third point. You need to write this down. Not only do you need to know the source of temptation, you need to know the course of temptation. It leads to death. But thirdly, you need to know how to conquer temptation. How is temptation conquered? And for this, we have this positive note in verse 16 to 18. Do not err, my beloved brethren, every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation or variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. Now, interestingly, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Bible scholars disagree as to whether that deception goes back to verse 13 and deals with our uh, blaming God. Don't be deceived. God is not the source of your sin. Or it looks forward to what he goes on to say about the goodness of God. I think it does both. I think we need to be careful that we're not deceived, that we're to blame for our sin. And I think we need to look forward, and in order to gain victory over our sin, this is step number one. Remember God's goodness. Remember God's goodness as a foundation for your life. In the darkest moments and the most difficult times, you must never forget that God is good. Someone said, never doubt in the dark what God has spoken in the light. God has spoken very clearly in His Word. If you doubt God's goodness while being tempted, you will disobey Him. And you'll seek to satisfy your sinful desires in another way. Notice verse 17, the way God gives is good, every act of giving. What God gives is good, perfect gift. I want to say this morning that no matter what comes into your life from the hand of God, it's good. Remember Joseph, sold by his brothers as a slave? You basically would look at that and go, bad. How you doing, Joseph? Not good. My brothers just sold me. I'm a slave. Then he's lied about. Then he's thrown in prison. 
finally he's exalted. Second to Pharaoh, his brothers come and bow before him. And he says, I am Joseph. They begin to weep. And Joseph says, you meant it for evil. But God intended it for good. If you are his child, I want you to know that nothing but good comes into your life but from the hand of God. And nothing can come into your life but through the hand of God. When Paul had a thorn in his flesh, he said it was a messenger of Satan to buffet me, but he said there was given me this gift. It was given to me, and I believe it was given by God. God allowed Satan to buffet Paul. You go, that's not very nice. Gee, why would God do something like that? And Paul said it was to keep me humble so that I could be usable. Because Paul had been caught up to paradise, God had to give him some pain to balance his life. And God has to give you some pain to balance your life and to keep you humble and to keep you dependent on God. And guess what? That's good. That's good. I hope you won't misunderstand me, but there may be some of you right now that are going through difficult times. And through your tears and through the pain, you don't understand, but it could be one of the best things that ever happened to you. Someone said, I thank God for the bitter things. They've been a friend to grace. They've driven me from the path of ease to storm the secret place. I thank God for the friends who have failed to fill my heart's deep need. They've driven me to the Savior's feet upon His love to feed. I thank God through all life's way that no one could satisfy. And so I have found in God alone my full and rich supply. We resist many times the pain that God allows And yet God has allowed it for our good and for his glory. We need to understand that. And in this passage, it's a foundation. God is good. His gifts are perfect. And thirdly, God gives consistently. Cometh down is in the present tense, verse 17. It means keep coming down. God's gifts keep coming down. And then fourthly, verse 17, the God who gives is good. He's the Father of lights. Love that. God made the Son. He's the Father of lights. Father means source, by the way. When it says God is the Father of lights, He's the source of all light. Don't you like the sun? I like the sun. Do you like the sun? I think the sun's a good thing. I think we'd all be dead without the sun. And I like the moon. It reflects the light of the sun. But we've had this beautiful full moon lately. It's just been gorgeous. And I thank God for the moon and I thank God for the stars. They are all created by God. He's the Father of lights. He's the source of all lights. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, a figure of speech for speaking of the goodness of God. And then he says, with whom is no variation, nor shadow of turning. Now the moonlight ebbs and wanes. Goes from full moon to half moon to quarter moon to Almost no moon, and then when the stars ebb and wane, and shooting stars shine and then disappear, they change. But God, there is no shadow of turning. Sunlight even changes. The sun comes up in the east, and the shadows are cast to the west. Then the sun falls into the west, and the shadows are cast to the east. But God does not change. And in speaking of God's immutability, God's goodness does not change. So in all the storms of life and all the difficulties of life and all the trials of life and all the hardships of life, God is 
good and God does not change. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous, the psalmist says, can run into it and be safe. This morning you can run into the goodness of God and you can shelter your heart there and say, God, I I don't understand, but I know that you're good. And I know that nothing but good comes from me. You say, well, what's this got to do with temptation? When tempted, you're tempted to doubt God's goodness. And God hasn't given me a good wife. I think I'll trade her in and get a couple more. God hasn't given me a good husband. I need to get rid of this one and find a new one. Or God hasn't given me enough money, so i got to go out and take things in my own hands and do my thing and make more money. And i got to lie and steal and cheat and manipulate to get what I want because God isn't good. If you trust God and you obey God and you love God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength and you love your neighbor as yourself, you cannot go wrong. You cannot go wrong. You will have a blessed and wonderful and I would even say a happy life. Did you know that holiness leads to happiness and sin leads to sorrow? If there's anyone here contemplating sinful behavior this morning and thinking in terms of I'm going to yield to this desire, it's going to produce death and you're not going to be happy. If you're contemplating some sinful behavior, I promise you it won't make you happy. You want to be happy? Be holy. True righteousness. Jesus said, blessed. Oh, how happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So when it comes to temptation, I need to remember, God wants to give me what is good. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to obey Him. I'm going to wait on Him. And then lastly, we need to receive God's nature. Those are the two steps to conquering sin. Remembering God's goodness, verse 17. And then verse 18, we need to remember that God has given to us a new nature. I want you to notice it in verse 18. Of his own will, speaking of God, of his own will. He mentions God in verse 17, God the Father. And it's of his, God the Father's own will, that he begat us with a word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So first of all, he has begotten us. In other words, we are born again. It's the work of God. It's a divine, sovereign work. God is the source of His own will, begat He us. This is what we call regeneration. The theological term regeneration, the more common term is born again. We hear that a lot, right? Nicodemus, you must be born again. You can't go into the kingdom of God. You can't enter into the kingdom of God unless you are born Again, the first birth is a natural birth. We inherit a sin nature from Adam. Second birth is a spiritual birth. It means to be born from above. And we inherit a new nature from God. And now we have a a new ability or capacity. I like to think of a nature as an ability or capacity. Sin nature, ability, capacity to sin. A new nature from God through regeneration, a new ability, a new capacity to live righteously. God has implanted His life within me. Christianity is the life of God in the soul of man. As a matter of fact, you're not a Christian unless you've been begotten of God, unless you've been born again. 
You're not a Christian because you come to church on Sunday morning. You're not a Christian because you've been baptized. You're not a Christian because you live in the United States of America. You're not a Christian because you have a Christian haircut. (laughs) Whatever that is. As Skip described me when I first got saved, I didn't look like a Christian. I went to work for Camp's Crusade with big beard and long hair, and they were all praying that I would get saved, you know. Pray for John Miller. We need hope. He's getting... And they thought I was unsaved because of my hair, you know. It's not the length of your hair. It's where your heart is at. God had given me a new heart. And eventually the outside changes is reflective of the new life that comes to us in Christ. Amen? But it's a matter of the heart. You have to have re. Birth, you have to be born of the Spirit. And then notice the instrument in our birth is the word of truth. The word of truth. What is that? Well, it's the Bible. It's the Scripture. It's the Gospel message. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. It's the good news. When a person is born into God's family, there is the Word of God And there is the Spirit of God. The two come together and you are born of God. And thus you have the life of God. You become a child of God. But just as there is two elements in conception, there are two elements in the spiritual birth. There is the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And we are born of God. But this is the faith part. I want to make this perfectly clear. God has born us or regenerated us of His own will. But salvation is by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. What is the gift of God? Salvation. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is not a work, but it is the arm that reaches out and takes the gift Salvation that God wants to give. God will force it on no one. And if it is a gift, then we must receive it. If we don't receive it, then it's not a gift. God wants to give you the gift of salvation. In John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world, right? That He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But notice what we must do, believe. We must receive. We must have faith in Jesus Christ who died for us. The purpose, verse 18, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. God wants us holy. Old Testament imagery of first fruits was that that was dedicated to God, set apart for God, and holy to God. And simply stated, we become That first fruit, we are dedicated to God, we are holy to God, and we belong to God. That's what God wants in your life. He wants you to be born again. He wants you to be filled with His Holy Spirit. He wants you to have that new nature. He wants you to live a life that pleases Him. All good gifts come from Him. You have to trust Him and look to Him and depend upon Him, and God will bless your life. God has given us that new nature that we should be holy, that we should be a kind of first fruits. Now, by way of summary, let me give you four points in closing. Number one, remember temptation's source. It's not from God, it's from our sinful desires. Remember temptation's course. 
desire, disobedience, and death. And thirdly, remember God's goodness. Remember God's goodness. And fourthly, receive the greatest gift, God's new nature. And if you're here this morning and you haven't been born again, that's your great need. I really have nothing to offer you by way of resisting temptation if you haven't been born of God, if you haven't received a new nature. So if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor John, I don't know that I am really a Christian because I don't know if I've been born again. I don't know if I've really trusted Jesus to save me. Then you need to make that commitment this morning. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would speak to each that is here by your spirit, that you would convict, that you would convince, that you would convert, Lord, those that are unsaved today. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you're here and say, Pastor John, I don't know that I am truly saved. I don't know that I'm a child of God. I don't know that I'm a Christian. I can't seem to resist temptation. I'm living a life of habitual, continual sin. And I need that new nature implanted in me that I might be victorious. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that when I die, I'll spend eternity in heaven with God. If that's your prayer and that's your desire, I want you to raise your hand up and back down so that we could pray for you this morning. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. I'm going to pray for you, pray with you. If you're here, just say, pray for me. Raise your hand up and back down. We're going to pray for you this morning. Anyone here that would say, I want Jesus to come into my heart and forgive my sins, to be my Savior. I want to commit my life to Him this morning. God bless you over on the side. Anyone else? Slide your hand up and back down. We'll pray for you. I want Jesus to come into my heart and forgive my sins. Anybody else? Father, I pray this morning for those that are here. Pray for those few hands that have gone up. Lord, I pray for them that they would make a commitment today to you. If you've raised your hand this morning, even if you didn't raise your hand, you need to pray this simple, sincere, heartfelt prayer. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, Come into my heart, forgive my sins, and be my Savior. I trust you. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose again from the dead. And I trust you to save me. And I ask you to come into my heart and to be my Savior and be my Lord. I give you my heart and I give you my life. I surrender my life to you now in Jesus' name. Lord, touch them and help them to live a life of victory for you, Lord. And bless these, your people, and help them to remember your goodness, to rely upon the new nature, to feed upon your word and to walk in your spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we'll give you thanks and we'll give you praise and we'll give you glory. We ask it in Jesus' precious name and everyone agreeing said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.